0: I'm Grant Speed, and this is the Interim Leader podcast brought to you by Odges Interim, the UK's leading provider of interim management services. For the past two years, off-payroll legislation, the UK government's anti-avoidance tax legislation, is something that every public sector interim and their clients has had to contend with. Much to the indignation of the UK's independent workforce, last year the off-payroll working rules were also announced for the private sector, So as of next April, the legislation will come into effect for all commercial organizations and the independent workers that they engage with. However, from our experience, only a small pool of private sector clients are currently aware of how it will affect them and what will they need to do in order to ensure compliance. With me today is Nicole Slowey, the Operations Director at QDOS to discuss how it will affect private organizations and what can you do if you think a role that you are in or you are recruiting for falls inside of IR35. QDOS is a leading contract insurance firm specialising in insurance and advice for UK-based contractors, freelancers, consultants and interims. Importantly, the organisation boasts an extensive knowledge of IR35 and off-payroll working legislation. Nicole, welcome to the Interim Leader. Thank you, Grant. Lovely to be here. I'm going to start off, and I think we should start off with a bit of a history lesson. So okay. how did IR35 come into to, to, to play?
1: Well, much to a lot of organisations' disbelief, IR35 is not new legislation. It was introduced in, back in the year 2000. And fundamentally, the government had a view at that time that there was a lot of misuse of individuals working in an organisation and perhaps say resigning on a flight and going back into the same organisation, but as a limited company on a Monday, with no changes to their working arrangements. So there was a phrase that was coined at the time of Friday to Monday contractor, and the government felt that there was a huge amount of misuse of this, and that those individuals were receiving huge tax benefits for operating on that basis.
0: And so this is legislation that's been in effect for coming up to 20 years. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. So... You know, look, I, I'm reasonably au okay fait with the legislation, as you'd expect. But tell me about the off-payroll working legislation in the public sector then. So-
1: yeah, so through the last sort of 20-year history of IR35, not a huge amount actually changed in the legislation. Until in 2015, there was a paper published on published by the, the OTS, so the Office of Tax Simplification, around the use of limited company contractors in the public sector. Um, And you may remember reading at the time quite a notable piece on the head of the student loans company, who was a very high profile, who um, everyone assumed was a civil servant, Mm -hmm. but transpired to be a limited company contractor. So that sort of was the catalyst for what became public sector of payroll working rules. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, what the government sought to do through a couple of consultations was actually move the responsibility for determining IR35 status and that the tax liabilities subsequent to that away from the individual contractors themselves onto the public sector bodies, primarily because HMRC themselves don't have a grasp on the legislation. They don't have the resources to administer the legislation. And it was felt that actually better policing of it would come by putting the onus onto the organizations engaging the contractors, not the individuals themselves.
0: Okay, so so this is HMRC legislation. Yeah. yeah? 15 years in, they don't really have a grasp on how to administer this. And so they decide that the best person to decide that would be the end user, the client. Yeah.
1: So they felt that the obligation for determining the employment status of the workers should sit with organizations engaging those workers, not the workers themselves.
0: Okay. But previously it was down to the interim themselves?
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. So right the way up until the 6th of April 2017, it was the interim's responsibility for determining their own IR35 status. And if they were found to be inside of IR35 or caught within the scope of IR35, they should themselves have been paying the taxes relevant to that type of status.
0: Okay. Um, Now, as I recall from the consultation paper... The government felt that they were missing out on a significant amount of tax. Was it yeah. four hundred million pounds?
1: Yeah, so they estimate that the introduction of the public sector legislation has saw a yield of four hundred million pounds in that um that population of public sector. The numbers for private sector, I think, see the government believing that they will yield somewhere in the region of over several billion pounds by twenty twenty-three. So from a numbers game, as far as HMRC and the Treasury are concerned, it, it makes sense for them to bring the changes in that we did. Do
0: you think the numbers are based in fact? No, not no. at all.
1: Not <laughs> at all. I think that the key fact that HMRC often forget about, especially when we're talking about numbers, is limited company contractors are, by and large, not tax avoiders. They have their own companies, they pay corporation tax, they will pay dividend tax. And what HMRC's figures tend to forget is that loss in corporation and dividend tax if individuals are going to shift away from their limited companies through to operating on some sort of PAYE model. So whilst HMRC likes to think that these numbers are huge, it doesn't account for in its figures any loss in corporation tax revenue or dividend tax revenue. So it's always a bit of a red herring when they quote the figures that they actually do. And I'm pretty sure now that the OBR itself is actually challenging the figures that were produced in last year's budget.
0: Right. Interesting. So, look, I, I want to take you back then. So in, in April 2017, the off-payroll legislation comes in uh, for the public sector. Yeah. What was your experience of that introduction of the legislation?
1: From our side, it was chaotic. Mm -hmm. I think that lots of public sector bodies that we worked with just had absolutely no idea about what IR35 was. They had no concept, actually, to how many limited company contractors they had operating within their organisation. And this was all underpinned by, in actual fact, draft legislation only being published early December 16th. Mm -hmm. And final legislation not actually being published until March of seventeen, with an introductory date of the 6th of April. So there was lots of unknowns that public sector bodies had to deal with around what will the legislation actually include, what will we be required to do, let alone then actually trying to get to grips with the specifics of IR35 and status and key status tests and how to assess workers.
0: And they introduced a tool, didn't they?
1: They did. So at the time it was introduced, it was called the ESS. So it was the Employment Status Service, mm-hmm. um, which has now subsequently been rebranded to CEST, check employment status for tax. Now the ESS was a upgrade of a tool that had previously existed in HMRC's guidance. It was ironically built by a population of several hundred contractors. <laughs> <laughs> and it was designed with a purpose to help organizations make status determinations um again like with the draft legislation the introductory dates of cest as a tool for being accessible in the market were late technically two and a half years on this the tool is actually still in beta it's right. not actually a final version and sort of through that period of late 2016 through to right up to after the introductory dates, so we're probably talking May 17, there were lots of changes being made to the tool as people were making determinations. So we would go and have a look at it one day and get a certain set of results based on a certain set of inputs. Maybe a couple of days later, we would go back into do a similar exercise and get a completely different output. So HMRC themselves were still trying to get to grips with the test, its output, the algorithm, right the way through to after the introductory date of the legislation.
0: Now, the thing that struck me about the tool is it's an anonymous test. Yes. Okay. So so you can't take the test, say, as an interim, this is where I'm going to be working, or as an end user, so this Mm -hmm. is the interim I'm going to be engaging, and then record that that's the fact and that's the result from it. It's just a guide, isn't it?
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. It's a test that has input from one party in the supply chain. Mm -hmm. It is based on interpretation of some very carefully worded questions or not so carefully worded questions. And again, that was actually something else that was changing throughout the early stages of the tool was the actual specific wording. Um, And I think the fact that it's an assessment method which doesn't take into account... Both sides of the, the view of a particular engagement. So something that involves both the, the interim and the client, the engager. Um, and it also has a, a bizarre sort of approach to waiting. So it, for example, excludes a key status test, mutuality of obligation. It has an over-reliance on substitution. So yes, while substitution is a key indicator when it comes to IR-35. The weighting which HMRC's says tool puts on it is disproportionate to how most other tax advisors would approach that. Um, and I think the fact that it's a tool which has been designed where if you input a series of answers, it shortens that assessment pathway versus another input can take you right the way through a certain set of questions. So it isn't, in every instance, considering all the facts of a particular engagement, which is essential when it comes to making accurate status determinations.
0: But surely now with the advent of this legislation coming into the commercial sector as of next year, these issues are resolved?
1: Unfortunately not. So the expectation is that we will, or we were told that we would see a version, an updated version of CEST in September. Mm-hmm. We're now at the 16th. Um, right. I don't believe that that has been published yet. Um, and from the the sound bites that we've heard from various people in industry who've been involved in the preliminary testing of the enhancements, There's not been a huge amount of change to the test. So the challenges that we had around MU, that's apparently not been addressed and is still going to be omitted from the assessment.
0: Um, MU is mutuality of obligation, right?
1: So that's a key status test, um, Mm. a cornerstone of determining r 35 status. And HMRC Mm. has chosen to omit it from its own Right.
0: Um,
1: And again, similarly with the piece on substitution, the expectation is that that's not necessarily going to have changed. I think that even if the HMRC... are are making some enhancements we're getting to that sort of crunch time so if it has to be used as a a tool for guidance and organizations want to use it for a tool of guidance but we have this we know there is an update coming now's really the time it should be published and organizations can start to get to grips with it because you almost need a assessed 101 in order for organizations to properly understand HMRC's approach to determining status and I think that's why as an organisation in that space, we wouldn't recommend that businesses utilise the tool as their only means of making determinations, because I think there are too many holes, if you like, in HMRC's approach to determining status.
0: You talk to a lot of organisations, Nicole, and have done over the the past few years as well. Um, Do you think people are ready for this legislation? Are people aware of it?
1: People are aware. Okay. Um, I think that there is a very broad mix of how prepared people are. So I'm having conversations with clients who I've been having discussions with for over a year. Mm -hmm. But I am also having conversations with clients every day for the very first time. And that's in advance of those organisations even bringing together a working party within their own businesses. So there is a real broad mix. I think that lots of organisations perhaps recognise it's something that they need to address, they need to get comfortable with, they need to put a strategy in place, but as with any sort of piece of legislation or something that's been introduced, business as usual and other focuses within organisations can often take priority. So we're working with some organisations who are going through a couple of acquisitions across a few clients actually, and it's very much falling to the wayside of priority So I think that there is an awareness, but I think that we will, similarly to the public sector introduction, probably still have organisations getting in touch with us come March next year, asking for help, as that's their first step of actually trying to address IR35 within their own businesses.
0: Yeah, I think from our perspective, that there was, to echo the word you used, there was a lot of chaos. Yes. Um, And and we clearly talked to a lot of interims, and we talked to a lot of clients, and that there is um, confusion, differing views, very differing views yep. on what it should be. I, I think you know. I, I feel most for the you know the interim limited company contractors yep. themselves. Uh, I, I think they they're, they're struggling to understand what to do. Um, what would you advise a limited company contractor, an interim manager, to be doing at this stage to prepare?
1: I think in terms of the steps that the individuals can now take, I think reaching out and having discussions with your clients, Mm -hmm. having discussions with your recruitment agencies and those who are actually paying your invoices as a means of understanding what their strategies are. So it may be that they can't give you any definites at this point in time, but from a contractor perspective, what you want to see from your client and your agency is that they are taking it seriously, that it is on their agenda and that they can start to give you some specific instruction around what their plans are. In the meantime, I think it's important for contractors and interns to get a feel for what their status could potentially be. So perhaps going and getting an independent review of your working arrangements, an independent review of your working practices, so that you can perhaps gauge what is potentially going to happen when you're going to be subject to an assessment with your client. And again, fundamentally, that can also help aid in the discussions that you're going to have with your clients at the point when they come to make that determination or assessment.
0: Yeah, It's good advice. <laughs> I think, um, so, so one thing that um, struck me within the public sector as we we moved into this legislation, not only the confusion, was that there was a general consensus that organisations could put in blanket coverage so they could make the decision that... The, you know, everybody was deemed an employee for tax purposes, I think yep, that's, that's the phrase. Right, yeah. um, or, or within, inside IR35. I think some of NHS trusts notably did that. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming, given that it was ruled that that was inappropriate and it's, you know, it's got to be individually led now, that the, the corporate world is not thinking the same thing.
1: Unfortunately, not quite. So whilst I, based on the discussions we're having with clients and people in the market and observing, whilst I'm not hearing of anyone blanket determining contractors Mm -hmm. inside on any sort of scale that's equitable to what happened in the public sector, Mm -hmm. there are a couple, but not many, what private sector organisations are doing, which is deemed compliant and is fundamentally a commercial decision, is issuing a statement and taking a position that they no longer choose to engage limited company contractors at all. Right. So they are not strictly doing anything wrong as far as adhering to their new obligations with the rules because if the business makes a commercial decision not to engage with limited companies, that's perfectly fine. But I think what private sector organisations are underestimating is the operational risk that that presents to the businesses and what is in effect a blanket determination, just a blanket determination of a different sort And I think that organisations need to recognise that they have benefited from the use of contractors. I expect that contractors will be integral to their business operations and their key projects within their businesses. And that by taking such a drastic position on the matter could potentially lead to walkouts by contractors engaged within those organisations, which I think is what something that everyone wants to avoid as much as possible, because that was something that happened in the public sector when those blanket inside determinations were made, and I think is that something that could equally happen, where organisations take that position to say we no longer want to work with limited companies; it's umbrella only or PAYE only or whatever other means, but where the individuals are being taxed um, as employees.
0: Tell me about the umbrella-only option, because this, this was you know uh, the sense of if you're employed by an umbrella, you are automatically set outside of that legislation.
1: That yeah, correct? so that's exactly it. So when you are engaged by an umbrella company, you as the individual become an employee of that umbrella company and have the relevant employment taxes deducted from your engagement. Mm. So for all intents and purposes, if you're currently engaged by an umbrella company, IR35 won't apply because you have no personal service company no limited company of your own if you currently operate via your own limited company you go through an assessment your client deems you to be inside it may be that umbrella is put forward as a payment option or a means for you to deliver your services going forward which means you become a employee of the umbrella and have those taxes deducted so it's another way of of trading and delivering your services, albeit not actually through your own limited company.
0: And I'm guessing, you know, historically, there's been a huge variety in the quality of umbrella companies out there.
1: Yeah, that's it. And I think that umbrella companies, probably rightfully so in the past, a few of them got a very bad reputation because they were promising individuals 90% plus take-home pay, Now, there is no one in the UK who will be taking home 90% of their salary. um, As much as we would wish. As much as everyone would wish, as much as that would be great. But there were so many of these schemes and then there were offshore considerations. Um, I'm also sure that we heard of one where contractors were actually being paid in part by a gold billion. Really? Yep. Wow. (laughs) So these, these schemes are very creative. They are very attractive and very lucrative. And it did give umbrella companies a bad reputation. But I think that that space has come a long way since then. Mm-hmm. There are lots of compliant umbrella companies out there who have gone through thorough compliance audits by your likes of your EY, people like that. So mm-hmm. there are definitely umbrella company partners out there that clients can engage with who are operating as they should be. And I think the fundamental point that client organisations need to maintain is all they need to know from their umbrella company partners is that the monies paid to the contractors are being treated as 100% salary so that the full value will always be subject to the relevant A9 tax.
0: Right, okay. So we we the, the expenses piece also comes into that from the legislation the year before, doesn't it? So if you're inside of IR35, therefore, if you're an umbrella company, you're employed. So any expenses to and from your place of work?
1: Yep, and so,
0: subsidence?
1: Yes. So there was a change. Subsistence. <laughs> subsidence yeah. is Travelling a right subsistence. Travelling <laughs> yeah, subsistence. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. So in 2016, there was a change in legislation around travel and subsistence expenses claims, which essentially meant that anyone considered, now this is where it starts to get a bit complicated and a bit grey, but for anyone who was considered to be subject to supervision, direction and control of their client could no longer claim TNS. Right. SDC is a different type of legislation. It's more general status to IR35, but principally it is the same. And it's very similar. So fundamentally, if a contractor was considered inside of IR35 and managed by an umbrella company, they would automatically fail that SDC test and would not be able to claim those expenses that we've just talked about.
0: So this has a meaningful impact in terms of it's making the tax um, space much more complicated for independent contractors.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think for individual contractors where you have your limited company that you've perhaps had for a few years, you've built up some value and some assets in your organisation, it's difficult to then think of, well, actually, I've got a bit of a job to do here with my accountant to get my affairs in order in consideration of the new legislation because there's going to be a change to how you actually deliver your services, how you're subsequently paid and the other knock-on tax implications that come with that.
0: Mm. Okay, can you tell me a little bit about your company, Kudos?
1: Of course Kim. So um, for our sons, we have very much been at the heart of all things tax VAT, and IR35 related for over 30 years. Um, with the introduction of IR35 back in the year 2000, we carved a niche in that piece of legislation, which has saw us undertake, somewhere in the region of, I think on last count, over 160,000 determinations in our organisation's history. Right. Um, We have successfully defended over 1,600 contractors against HMRC in IR35 inquiries. Um, And to give a bit of context, we've actually only lost three cases. Wow. So our own knowledge, understanding and practical application of the legislation, we have proven HMRC wrong in 1600 instances so that put us in a very unique place and when it came to public sector reform and private sector reform whereby we have the skills and the expertise and knowledge to help those organizations through what a lot of people are saying is the seven stages of grief Um, (laughs) and 35 is the new Brexit or it's the new GDPR but that put us in a really good place whereby we can take the host of experience that we've gained over helping and servicing the contractor market directly to help support those businesses Um, and we were successfully able to do that in the public sector, Um, we are successfully doing that in the private sector and I think that our approach is very much has compliance and contractors and the fair use of contractors and interims to continue in the market going forward Mm. because I think that it's important that organisations don't panic that they don't automatically think that the most appropriate risk strategy for them to take is to exit the contractor market altogether. Um, there are ways and means that you can compliantly manage your responsibilities, make those determinations, mitigate risk within your business, and still have contractors operating with a limited amount of upheaval. And I think a lot of people don't see that as being a realistic objective, but mm-hmm. from our perspective, we can actually demonstrate that it in fact is, and we've been able to do that for. Several organisations, public sector side, and multiple more organisations, private sector
0: side. Mm. And can I ask? I know we have a lot of interim managers that that follow us on, on these um, or subscribe to the uh, podcast. For for an individual interim, you will do a determination, and you will underwrite or provide insurances if you feel they're outside of IL thirty five.
1: Yeah. So the work that we are doing with fee-paying organizations and private sector organizations who engage there in terms is provide an assessment facility mm-hmm. whereby the organizations can arrange for their contractors to be individually assessed and have their status correctly considered by an impartial IR35 expert. And then for the those who we determine to be outside of IR35, we will provide an insurance policy to both the engaging organisations to help protect them and their risk in, in the event of an HMRC inquiry. So the work that we're trying to do fulfills the obligations of all the parties in the supply chain, but keeping the contractors at the heart of it and ensuring that they can be subject to a fair, objective and compliant assessment of their circumstances.
0: Okay, understood. So, I, But I couldn't come to you now if I'd had a... HMRC chasing me for a previous thing and um, ask for a policy, right?
1: <laughs> I mean, probably not. I think that that would um, definitely, we, we have had that and I think it's understandable that that's a, an approach that contractors take, but I think that the best defence that people can have is to be proactive and not wait until that eventuality happens to then think about the, the what-ifs of, of protection and indemnification and, and actually having undertaken some IR35 due diligence on your own circumstances.
0: Brilliant. That's a a really good insight into what to do going forward. Um, Nicole, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. It's it's really interesting to get your knowledge and your company's knowledge, and we will be posting Nicole's details um, on our website with the podcast um, uh, when it goes out. Um, But thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's
0: been great.